Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the joy we have when we gather together with other believers. Lord, it is a place of refuge to come here on a Sunday morning and to be with one another. Certainly, Lord, it's a refuge for me to be away from all of the the craziness of life, to get to come here and focus on you is a blessing. And Lord, we should focus on you all the time. But so many things come against us, and on Sunday morning we have an opportunity to just set those things aside and focus on you. So I pray you would help each one of us do that. Lord, as I come to the end of this book, I know my mind is a little scrambled this morning with all that's gone on this week. I pray that you would calm my heart, give me orderly thinking. And I pray as we approach the end of this study that you would help us to apply the truths that we learn. Lord, that's our prayer every Sunday, whether from Pastor Steve's preaching or Sunday school or any other environment where we're being taught the word. We pray that you would help us be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The nature of thing, I realize I, I like to have my Bible with me when I'm teaching because I have it open, but my Bible is in my truck and my truck has a big nail in the front tire and so that's just another <laughs> one of the things that happens in life. So I don't have my actual Bible with me to flip, which I would like to do right now. But as you know, we have been journeying through the book of Hebrews for a really long time. And we have been covering the material and when I originally was thinking about these few verses, I wasn't sure whether I was going to teach one message or two messages, but as I got through and I started studying it, I realized this all really can fit up in a single bit of teaching. And in some respects, as we have been in a long road to get to this point, I think the original recipients were in that scenario. Certainly, they would have heard things much more quickly than we did because when they received this, it likely would have been read at a somewhat public gathering at least one time all the way through. Now, I've not stopped and timed myself to read from Hebrews 1.1 as we know it in our Bibles to the end of Hebrews 13.25. Experts in the commentaries tell me that would probably take somewhere less than an hour. I don't know... For certain, if that's accurate, that's just what I read. But you can imagine, given the, the material that is contained throughout the entirety of this book, it would have been overwhelming to hear all of this at one sitting. Truths that are just pouring at you from many directions, it would have been the proverbial situation where you're trying to take a sip from a fire hose. And if we stopped and went chapter by chapter, which we're not going to do from a time perspective... But if we stopped and went chapter by chapter, we would realize and be reminded of all the astounding truths and the challenging exhortations that are contained throughout the book. Now, the overall focus has always been the same, and if you could step back and always remember this, you'd have something profitable for you, which is Jesus Christ is enough. Even today, that message still rings true. The particular issues they were dealing with of, of appealing to the temple, the temple was still standing, we believe. There were still animal sacrifices. These individuals were coming out of Judaism, and so they had a desire to go back to those rituals. It was comfortable. It was what they were used to. But throughout history, people have continually struggled with believing what is taught by Scripture and what is taught by Hebrews. Jesus is all you need. 
there's nothing else. There is no other way to salvation. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus and him alone. And so the book of Hebrews begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus and everything in between is trying to fix our eyes on Jesus. But he, in process of doing that, he has addressed a breadth of topics throughout this book. He's talked about Jesus in relation to angels. He's talked about Jesus in relation to Moses and other Old Testament saints that were revered in Judaism. He's talked about Jesus in relation to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Jesus in relation to the Old Testament Levitical priest. Jesus in relation to individual believers. Jesus in relation to God the Father. And this truth has consistently been accompanied by exhortations to believers that at times are very direct and very challenging. Don't look to animal sacrifices. Don't go back. Don't walk away and become an apostate. If you do that, there's no hope for you. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Remember these examples of faith. Follow in their footsteps. Look out for other Christians. Make sure that other people finish the race, that you're not walking in the Christian walk in a selfish sense. Make sure that you respect your leaders, that you don't neglect coming to church. All these exhortations would have bombarded people in one sitting. It's really an astounding letter. I've said it many times. The reason I started studying Hebrews was because I hadn't studied Hebrews. And it's astonishing with any book of the Bible how much depth there is to it. But certainly I found that in my own study of Hebrews, and I hope you've seen some of that. But again... If you can imagine the first time you heard this, if somebody just stood up and read all of this to you, it could have been a little bit overwhelming. That's a lot to digest. That's a lot to hear. There's some hard statements. There's hard truths. There's statements about apostates and warnings about judgment that probably rattled some cages. So as the writer comes to the end of the book, I think there's a tenderness to his closing I think there's a sense in which he's not just saying, so there, take that. But he's ending with compassion. He's not softening anything he says. He's not, he's not minimizing anything he says. But he wants to encourage the readers. It's personal. He knows them. They know him. And he wants them not to be burdened by his letter, but to be encouraged by it for all its hard truth. So I'm going to read these final verses, these final exhortations. I'm going to start at verse 20. I'm going to read through verse 25. I don't have a complex outline. I'm just going to address it as it's addressed in the text. But follow along in your Bibles as I read, beginning at verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So I'm just going to address this as I think the text addresses it. Certainly the text doesn't have an outline, but it's just the conclusion of Hebrews in three parts. Very simple, the conclusion of Hebrews in three parts. And the first part is a prayer in doxology. The first part is a prayer in doxology, and it's in verse 20 and 21, beginning with now the God of peace and ending with amen. 
A doxology, from a definition standpoint, is just an expression of praise to God. If you grew up in any type of liturgical church, you know a doxology. In fact, if you were to open up the hymn book, you'd find a doxology put to music. But in this context, there's a prayer with a doxology appended to it. But this is part of the encouragement and part of the care and concern for the listeners. He's not just spouting out truth as though he were a dispenser of justice. He cares for them. He's concerned for them. And he wants to reiterate things that will help them accept what he's teaching. In many respects, this is a self-explanatory text. I'm going to go through and highlight a few things, but the writer mentions some things here that he hasn't mentioned before. Things that he mentions explicitly here that are only implicit in other parts of the book. But put together, it again is focused on the centrality and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. But also focused on the fact that we're supposed to respond if we're children of God in a certain way to that truth. We're supposed to respond in obedience. Now he starts off with this simple phrase, now the God of peace. Again, these were individuals who were living in tumultuous times. As we saw in chapter 10, many of them had been persecuted. Some had been imprisoned. Some had likely lost their financial standing because of their commitment to Christ. It's not hard to envision a scenario where some were being ostracized by their family because they came out of a Jewish background and they were saying, we're walking away from what has been the traditions of our people for centuries and we're turning to Jesus Christ. We read in the gospel accounts how outraged the Pharisees and others were about Jesus. You can imagine some of that would trickle over beyond the crucifixion and into the first generations of believers. But in the midst of this hardship and persecution and, and strife and difficulty, the writer reminds them about peace. That God is a God of peace. Now, this is not a completely new concept. For example, earlier in the book, in chapter 7, when he was talking about Melchizedek, a type of Christ, he talked about the fact that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is king of peace. Pointing forward to the fact Messiah would be one who brings peace. In Hebrews 12, 14, he's already alerted us as believers, says, pursue peace with all men. Peace is supposed to characterize our lives, not turmoil caused by our activities. So in this context, he's just providing, I think, a gentle reminder of the character of God. And not only the character of God, the God of peace, but he talks something here about the power and majesty of God by alluding to something that he hasn't explicitly talked about before. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. It's the God of peace who had the power to raise the Savior. It's interesting because if you go through the book and you were to look through Hebrews, the beginnings of Hebrews and throughout, Jesus is pictured in heaven. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, in this great expression of who Jesus is, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this picture of the risen Savior occupying his place in heaven has occurred over and over, but here he sort of steps back and reminds his hearers how Jesus got there. The power of God raised him from the dead. Again, it was implied, but this is the first time he explicitly mentions the resurrection in that context. It was a supernatural display of God's power and of God's glory. And he, in this context, uses an expression that is different from how he's been referring to Jesus. He says, he calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. Again, you have people who are bombarded and pressed And they feel pressure from a variety of angles. And he's reminding them of the tender care that Jesus has for his children. It's interesting because he he devoted a substantial argument to proving that Jesus is the great high priest. The only high priest you ever need. A lot of that from chapter 5 to chapter 10 is pointing out Jesus' priestly and sacrificial role. And here, he's borrowing language that certainly is not new in the sense of the New Testament, but it's new to his letter. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep, his sheep know him. And Peter certainly expresses this idea of the sheep going astray and then the shepherd and guardian of souls that pulls them back. So this was common truth, but it was comforting truth. Because it reminds us of the care that God has for us as his children. Sheep are utterly dependent on their shepherd for guidance and protection. Without a shepherd, the sheep are easy targets. Those are truths I'm certain you've heard before. But here, at the end of a difficult letter, the writer is reminding the hearers that the God of peace provided them a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And all this was brought about through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, those are themes that I won't go into in great detail, but we talked about that extensively. Because in prior teaching, the contrast throughout Hebrews is what could the blood of bulls and goats do to deal with your sin? Nothing. But the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, could take care of everything. And this focus on the eternal covenant is making it clear to his hearers, you can bank on this. This isn't something subject to change. This isn't something subject to being redone. This blood accomplished something, and the covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, is forever. There is no time when one of the sheep of God has to wonder, well, will the terms of the transaction change? Well, okay, I believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, but is God going to change his mind? No, he won't. It's eternal, this covenant. If we were taking communion, we hear words, but Jesus himself, Mark 14, 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And in Hebrews chapter 10, there was even reference to Old Testament prophecy of the new covenant that was to come. Verse 16 and 17, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We can't get enough of that. 
Because as much as we try, we remember our sins. We remember our lawless deeds. And as much as it pains us, at times we still stumble and we still do those things. And it is convicting and horrifying. And yet the blood of the eternal covenant, if you're his child, takes care of it. And God's not going to renegotiate. That's a God of peace. You see this picture because the only way we have peace with God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no peace with God apart from that. And he ties all this together. If you just look at this imagery, it's very rich. He says, even Jesus our Lord. This is a beautiful picture. Jesus is alive. He is Lord of all. God raised him from the dead and because of the offering of his blood, God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus is Lord. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's the sovereign ruler over everything. For people living in tumultuous times in a topsy-turvy world, it was great comfort for them to know, number one, the God that saved them, would keep them saved. The terms weren't changing. And number two, there is a Lord over this earth. And it's not men. It's Jesus. That's comforting to me now. And I pray it is to you because our world seems completely off kilter. And I think it is. But the blood of the eternal covenant still cleanses our sins. God is still the God of peace and we have peace with God. And Jesus is still Lord despite all of the world shaking its fist at heaven. And he's our good shepherd. He's our great shepherd. He takes care of us. Now, all of this picture of God and his glory, it's a beautiful picture, is ultimately supposed to result in something. And so the writer, in essence, is offering a closing prayer for the people. So he's described this God, and then in verse 21, he's making it clear. He's asking God to do something in the hearts of individuals. And this is our prayer for ourselves. Certainly would be our prayer for one another. So even Lord Jesus, verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Again, as I... Think through this. This is a prayer we could utter for ourselves each and every day. If you're married, you could pray this for your spouse each and every day. You could pray this for your kids if they know the Lord each and every day. And this is always the case with Scripture. Truth is supposed to result in action. Truth is supposed to cause us to live differently. Now, clearly within this, he's not extolling the virtues of human exertion or human effort this is all through jesus christ god is the empowering agent for everything that's being set forth here working in us god working in us to bring this about but it comes back to something very simple jesus said if you love me you'll keep my commandments in this context we're being equipped in every good thing that's the prayer To do his will, which means obey his word. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. What's pleasing in his sight? Obedience to his word. 
Certainly that doesn't earn our salvation. Our salvation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's wrong thinking to ever disconnect our salvation from our lives because if you love him, you should be desiring to obey him. This really sort of explains why are we studying all this? Because we want to be equipped in every good thing, meaning anything God calls us to do, it's his empowering that equips us. And that equipping doesn't come apart from his word. I cringe at times because I see Christians that want God to do something, but they don't go to his word. He gives us his spirit to interact with his word to empower us to do the things he calls us to do. We can't do anything apart from God. And the means God has given us to be equipped is his word. And really this prayer with its profound descriptions of God really leads to the praise part, the doxology proper. God is working to equip us. That's the prayer. He knows this is God's will for us to be able to live obediently to do the things that he calls us to do. And he says, through Jesus Christ. And then he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what it's all about. The glory of God. That's what we live for and strive for. That's what we try and reflect is the glory of God. Living obediently is never about drawing attention to ourselves. I've thought many times about the role of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And one of the things that Jesus said is that the Spirit points to Jesus. The Spirit points to Him. I can tell you, one of the things that when you see people distort the teaching of the Holy Spirit is because they start focusing on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. In this context, everything is to bring Him glory. And normally an amen is appended by the congregation. If I'm reading to you, normally the amen would be the response to this. The writer inserts it. He just anticipates they're going to respond appropriately. The glory should go to Jesus Christ forever and ever, and everybody would say amen. So this first little portion is just showing every aspect of our lives is supposed to please the Lord. It's supposed to bring him glory. That's the prayer he has for his original hearers. That's the prayer we have for one another. So the first part of this conclusion is the prayer and doxology. Then there's what I just term a final exhortation, the final exhortation. He says an interesting thing at verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, in some respects, this is really, the, it's, it's clear that he's done with his writing but he has a concern for the people to understand it. Again, picture yourself. You've never heard of the book of Hebrews. And somebody comes in and says, I have a letter to read to you. And after almost an hour of reading, you're just sitting there with your eyes wide going, wow. What was that? But he uses that term brethren. It's a term intended to point out the familial relationship. He's not a disinterested outsider. He loves them. He cares for them. They're part of the same family. Again, we don't know who the actual author of Hebrews was, but he was known to the people and the people were known to him. He 
he had just given them strong challenges, strong exhortations, hard truths. And he's not in any way softening his teaching, but he wants to end on a positive note. He wants them to understand that he cares. But he also wants them to listen. He doesn't want them to hear all of these truths and then walk away from it. He wants them to bear with it. It's a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of challenge. It's a word of action. And he wants them to listen. He wants them to meditate on it. He doesn't want them to hear it and walk away. He wants them dwelling on those truths. He wants to urge them to heed his words, which really are God's words through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting that he says, I've written to you briefly. (laughs) Briefly. If I wrote a letter to somebody and it took an hour to read, we'd scratch our heads. I mean, it's not that way. But I think what he's alluding to, first of all, there are longer letters in the New Testament. Certainly the Old Testament had many books that are much, much longer than this. But I think he's alluding to the fact that on any given point, he could have talked for days. When you start talking about some of these things, he addressed them within the course of a chapter or so, but he could have written books on it. Just think about chapter 11, the great hall of faith, where he recounted the lives of men and women of faith. He could have spent all day there. He could have elaborated on those stories So I think what he's saying is, look, my writing to you didn't say all that could have been said. I've just written you a little bit for you to be convicted and encouraged and challenged. Listen to what I wrote. Don't don't walk away from this too quickly. I know there are a few of you that have heard me from when I started teaching this back in, I think it was 2008 or 2009. And some of you have joined in midstream. I know some people have gone online and listened to, to the Sunday school recording. I've taught. I'm in chapter 10. I've taught everything that I've taught here. I've eventually turned it into sermons and preached it. I think I'm in chapter 11. I take that back. But all of this is supposed to change our lives. All of this is supposed to impact us. We're supposed to bear with this. We're supposed to think about it and apply it. I've thought about this, and I have it somewhere in my notes. I don't remember where, so I don't know if I've already skipped over it because I don't actually read my notes. I just look through them, or I don't know if it's coming, but I'll put it here. If all of my preparation and studies of Hebrews, if all the messages I've teached, and it's been well over 100 messages, if all of that causes you to do nothing more than say that's interesting, then I've been a big failure. If this doesn't in some way challenge you to live differently, then I've not done anything profitable. So I want you to think about the things that we've studied over the years. I want you to think about the truths. I know for me, there are specific things that stand out at me at different times that convict me over and over. Okay, I've got to, I've got to change. I've got, I've got to think differently. So I pray that would occur to you, that you'd bear with this word of exhortation, that you would bear with this teaching. Now it's interesting because he gives this final exhortation, but then he appends some personal touches to it, including his desire to come and see them soon. He wrote them a letter, 
it's speculation as to why he wrote the letter first, but there's no doubt from what he's about to say that he would love to be there with them. He would have loved to have come and delivered the message in person. In fact, we're to assume that he probably will try and do that in the future. He says this in verse 23, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Now again, we don't know the author, and some people have immediately said, well, it must be Paul because there's Timothy, but Timothy knew a lot of people. And we don't have any other recorded record in the scriptures of Timothy being in prison, and yet the language used here suggests that he had been imprisoned and he was released. Again, we don't have any details of that, but it certainly makes sense. He was Paul's disciple, and Paul wound up in prison for what he was doing. You could imagine that the, the servant would be like the master, the, the disciple would be like the teacher. But these people knew who Timothy was. They had been impacted by him in some respect, and, and ultimately the expectation was that Timothy was released. They knew who Timothy was. This is, we believe, the same Timothy that was a disciple of Paul. He was their brother. He was known to them. And the writer was clearly known to them because he was saying, if, if Timothy comes, I'm going to come too. And then verse 24 again makes this type of personal touch stand out. He says, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. It's interesting because this particular letter wasn't written, obviously, to the leaders of the church directly. This letter wasn't sent directly to the pastors of a particular church with the direction, okay, you take and teach this to your congregation. It's likely at the time of the writing of this letter, which would have been before 70 AD, that primarily the churches were meeting in houses and things like that. There wouldn't have been great centralized places like Lakeside with tons of people. But the writer sent this letter to key members of congregations that he knew would distribute it to other people. And as part of that, he says, hey, greet the leaders. They know me, I know them. And greet everybody else too. There was a responsibility on the part of the recipients to make sure this was dispersed. And obviously they fulfilled their responsibility because we're reading it thousands of years later. But again, the writer was giving these strong exhortations, but he was doing it in a familial sense. This wasn't a dispassionate address. I want to come see you soon. Tell everybody I said hello. He says, those from Italy greet you. That engendered a lot of speculation over the years. It means one of two things. Either he was in Italy when he wrote it, and he said, all the people here with me are saying hello, Or he was traveling with Italians somewhere else, which certainly is possible as well. Either way, this is a situation where the recipients of the letter and the author were known to each other. And again, you picture after all of this truth is unloaded on them, after all of these exhortations, he basically is trying to tell them, look, hang in there. Stick with it. Follow through on what I'm telling you. I may be able to come see you soon. Other people care about you. They're saying, sending their greetings. I care about you. We're all in this together. The leaders and the, the holy ones, the saints, everyone, we're in this. Going back to the imagery before in chapter 12 when we talked about running races, this isn't a situation where we're seeing who gets there first. We're seeing that we all get there. And that's the kind of imagery of here, of just sort of linking arms with everybody 
send the greetings to all of you because he cares for every one of them. But this final exhortation is take heed. Don't forget what I'm telling you. Finally, he concludes with what we would probably term a benediction. So we had the prayer and doxology, then second was the final exhortation, and third, the benediction. It's very simple. Grace be with you all. This wasn't necessarily a formula, but this type of closing greeting was common in letters amongst believers. It's very simple. God's grace is already a part of their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But he's expressing a desire and hope that they'll continually be recipients of all of the blessings that God's grace provides. Again, this is a situation where he's closing with compassion and with a heart. It's a polite and sincere way for him to end this entire address. Grace only comes from God. And he's praying with this closing exhortation. He's asserting that's his desire for all of them. Every one of them. And it's not necessarily the correct context, but the words, it is finished, comes to my head. This is the end of the book of Hebrews. Again, my prayer for me and my prayer for my wife and my prayer for you is that we'll bear with the words of exhortation in the book of Hebrews. This has been a many-year process to go verse by verse through this. There have been some parts that are easy to understand and some parts that required a lot of thinking and studying. But as I go back to verses 20 and 21, it's an appropriate prayer for us. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, equip me, in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me close this teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it is of great comfort that you've given us Scripture. Lord, we don't know and can't fully comprehend all of the sacrifices made by your children over the centuries to enable us to hold in our hands the book of Hebrews. Lord, from the time your word is uttered, Satan distorts and twists and obfuscates and tries to nullify your word. And yet, Lord, you are powerful. You are transcendent. You are sovereign. And you've chosen to enable us to hold in our hands the entire Bible and the book of Hebrews. Lord, I pray that you will impress upon our hearts the truths of all of Scripture. But we have an accountability for what we've heard. Lord, I know I have an accountability for what I've studied. And I pray that you would help us be doers of this word. Lord, in many respects, our church is an educated church. We certainly, Lord, have focused everything we do on being a teaching church. But Lord, we need to bear with these words of exhortation. 
Our goal is not to be smarter, to know more. Our goal is to be holy like you are holy. So I pray, Lord, for each one of us that you'll take the things that we've learned over the years, whether we've heard all of the messages or whether we've only heard a few, and you'll enable us to do that which is pleasing to you. Lord, we pray for your empowering by your spirit and by your word to do your perfect will as revealed in Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that as a Sunday school class and as a church, we'll encourage one another in this endeavor. Lord, there's a reason that you commanded in this book not to forsake gathering together with other believers. We need one another, Lord. And I pray that you would help each one of us in the days and weeks and months and years that follow to live out the truths of Scripture and to be an encouragement to one another to get to the finish line. Lord, we are commanded by this book to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be single-minded in being fixed on our Savior. Lord, we love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.